Welcome to the Nobody Guide to Life, where we provide tips and tools for personal growth, personal development, and your spiritual journey that you can use right now in your everyday life. I'm J.A. Plosker. You can always find out more at thenobodyguidetolife.com, and you can check out videos and find episodes on the Nobody Guide to Life YouTube channel. Thank you so much for joining us. When people ask you about the dreams and hopes you have for your life, what do you tell them? Do you talk about that perfect job you'd like, or maybe it's that amazing relationship you want. And sometimes when we stand on the precipice of achieving something amazing, we sabotage it. And it's not always clear why we do that, but chances are it has something to do with our thoughts getting in the way, the stories we tell ourselves because of the negative experiences that have happened to us, or our limiting beliefs about who we think we are and what we think we deserve. And for today's guest, self-sabotage was a way of life until it wasn't. Nathan Siegel has been on a spiritual journey since age 11 when he received the Zen koan or riddle, Where Does Time End? He later went on to explore Tibetan Buddhism and Siddha Yoga. And after a few years, he experienced a spiritual awakening and a profound shift. Nathan also worked with a coach to help clear his post-traumatic stress disorder and to break free of self-sabotage and dissociative amnesia. And now he helps others to live a more productive life free of self-sabotage. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's really a pleasure. And I love in your bio, in, in this journey that you took, that you received that Zen koan at age 11. Can you talk to us a little bit about how your spiritual journey started and what that looked like for you? Well, I was just, um, I was 11 years old. I was standing in my parents' living room and I wasn't doing anything in particular. And all of a sudden a question popped into my mind that I couldn't answer. I didn't uh, know the answer to it. The question was, where does time end? And I remember standing there thinking about it but I didn't have an answer, and when I looked at science and so on, I couldn't find anything there. And when I talked to my parents about it, they su suggested that I write to the newspaper, but I had this intuitive understanding that that would be the wrong approach, so I didn't do it. Right. And over the years, it just it was the thing that started the spiritual journey for me. I didn't realize that until I wound up working with a, a Zen teacher many years later, because he was asking me, you know, where did your journey begin? And I said, well, I don't know, but I had this weird incident that happened. Yeah. And when he heard that, I heard him clap his hands together and make an exclamation. He said, that's it. Wow. And I thought, that, oh, that was kind of cool. <laughs> it wasn't what I expected, <laughs> but, you know, that's where it began. That's so interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about that foray into Zen and then and a little bit about Zen and then what that led you to? It, it really didn't begin with the Zen. I mean, the spiritual journey for me, when I embraced it formally, I was studying with a guy by the name of Brian Finney. And it was around that time that I was having all these uh, psychic openings in my life, different things that were going on, and I didn't understand what was happening. So I looked for resources. It started with an, uh, an outfit called the Association for Research and, and Enlightenment, which was founded by the late Edgar Casey. Right. And when I went to this group, they said, we can't help you, but we will refer you to this guy. And his name is Brian Finney. Brian, when he heard what was going on, introduced me to Zen, uh, not Zen, Tibetan Buddhism and meditation. Right. I studied with him for a long time. And then later on, I wound up meeting Stephen Bodian, who was um, one of the teachers under a, another teacher by the name of Zandra Shanti. 
And when I knew that, I knew that Stephen was the right guy for me because I really like Ajashanti a lot. And it was through him, it was through Stephen that he asked me about the whole um, a riddle, and that's right. where it came out. Right. You know, one of the reasons, Nathan, that I wanted to start with your journey, other than the fact that it's, you know, it's always interesting to hear where people have come from spiritually, is it's such an interesting, your work focuses so much on this idea of self-sabotage. And I think in some ways, spiritual practice really helps people with that because it gets them to really think through what they want in life and the things that are stopping them. And I'm wondering then if you can make the connection for us between your early spiritual journey and how you began the process of realizing that self-sabotage was a piece of your life. Can you talk a little bit about self-sabotage and how it affected you? Yeah, sure. I mean, it first showed up in a form that I could recognize And I actually didn't recognize it at the time, but many years later. But it first showed up in an experience when I was 10 years old. And at that time, I gave a report to my grade five class on amoebas. Now, they didn't like it. They said uh, they called me a liar. They'd called me stupid. They said Mm -hmm. I made it up. And the shock of 30 kids screaming at me was more than I could take. And so I wound up creating the belief that I'm stupid. And the shock of it also created amnesia, so I couldn't remember what happened to me. And after that, I failed my way through school. And it wasn't until 13 years later that I was standing in a locker room of a tech school, and I was doing things, uh, working on different subjects, doing fairly well. And I remember standing there and thinking, where did I ever get the idea that I was stupid? And that's when all my memories came back. Wow. So... After that, my marks took off, but I still had the problem with of being stupid, but it also, the stage was set for the self-sabotage, dissociative amnesia, and it just repeated for many, many years throughout my life. And it wasn't until about five years ago that I realized I am sick of this. I, by that time, I had developed enough awareness to realize when it was happening, but right. I couldn't stop it. And back then I thought, I need to change the way that I'm behaving. I need to change the way that I'm acting when I get a shock or a trauma, because that's what would trigger the self-sabotage and the amnesia. Nathan, for people listening, this experience, although it was unique to you, is actually something common to so many of us. And I think we have this archetype in the world of the teasing, the person who's teased, the the person who's at the wrong end of a joke. And I, I think that's something that a lot of listeners can probably connect to. And I certainly know that I can connect to that kind of experience. And can you take us back to that moment when you were in that classroom and that happened to you? Did you shut down at that moment? The next day at school, how did you handle that? Can you talk to us a little bit about what happened in that moment? Because I think a lot of people can probably identify with that kind of thing happening in their own life. Well, I remember retreating into a a dark corner in my mind and there was a form of shutting down. There was also um, a thing that I did where uh, after that particular event, I made the decision to become really uh, well-spoken, really well-learned. I think we always try to come up with a way to maybe compensate whether we, like you said, whether we 
push forward some people if they're bullied, maybe, which is a big thing right now. Some people are driven to go to the gym to really bulk up physically. Or like you said, some people, you committed yourself to be very well-spoken to sort of compensate for that. And do you find with the people you work with that that's a common practice that people take an experience like that and build up other muscles around that? You know, it really depends. I've, I've talked to some people who are still so lost in the amnesia and the the self-sabotage that they can't even look at it. Right. As some people, um, they just get stuck. And I understand that because I, right. I was in that place myself. What really has to happen with the person in order for them to make a decision to, or in order to begin to recover is they have to make a decision where they say, I've had enough of this. Right. And I'm not going to live like this anymore. And when they make that kind of a decision, then resources and opportunities for change will start to appear. So then in that in that place, can you take us through that process of healing that you experienced? How did you learn to overcome this and then to even not only just overcome it, but to empower yourself and then to want to empower others to overcome it? Well, it happened five years ago, and I, I can't remember specifically what happened, but I was staying with a friend of mine here in Mexico, and there was some sort of shock in my life, mm. and I noticed how I reacted to it. And what I discovered is when I really started to look at this, I, at that point, I said, I've had enough. Right. I'm sick of living like this. I need this to change. And so what I did is I started to look at this whole thing to do with self-sabotage, and what I noticed is that there was would be the self-sabotage, uh, what would trigger it, and then what I called a knee-jerk reaction. Right. And so what I noticed is that there were two separate events that seemed to happen as one. There would be the shock, there would be this, the self-sabotage, and then there would be this, uh, like this reaction that would go on that would create the amnesia. And so what I did is I started to mentally separate those things out. So... If I wound up getting a shock in the form of an email or a nasty phone call or something like that, what I would do is instead of having that instant reaction, I would get up and leave the room. Mm, yes. I would physically get up and walk away from my computer, and I wouldn't have that reaction at all. I mean, I would have a reaction. I'd feel the pain of it in my body, in my mind, but I would sit and I would hold the energy of it. Wow. Because if I didn't hold the energy, if I'd let myself go upward, that would trigger the amnesia. So the challenge was to hold it in my body. And so the more I could hold it in my body, it gave, I gave myself permission to feel it without having a reaction. And once enough time had passed that I could go back to the original source of the shock or the trauma, and if I could look at it or listen to it without having a reaction, then I was ready for the next step, which was to respond. Right. From a place of response, resilience, to come from a place of being really grounded. If I couldn't do that, if I still had a reaction to it, I'd get up and walk away again. Mm. And that's how I started to create the separation between the shock and the response. And I would eliminate the, the, re, the reactivity. The reactivity was one of the places where I was making a huge mistake. I saw it many, many times over the years, and I thought, I've got to stop this. Right. And that's how I did it. How long of a road then? Because you said it started, what, five years ago? Yep. And because I think sometimes we we want results quickly because the things coming to us are are painful, right? And we, we want it to end so badly. And how was it for you developing the patience to have to 
face these issues and step away and face and step away. What else did that bring up inside of you as you were trying to build that muscle of discipline? Well, inevitably panic and right. wanting to run away. There was another thing that I discovered uh, along the way is I was, I wound up in a situation where I really had to face his pain in a major way. And at that time, around the, um, I'm just trying to think of the timeline of it. It was actually before I made the decision to change this, but I was reading The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Right. And he has a couple of sections in the book, um, Beyond Suffering unhap and Unhappiness, There is Peace and the Meaning of Surrender. And in that, in those chapters, I discovered how I was creating my own suffering by my thinking. Mm -hmm. And around that same time, I suffered a severe shock, right. which felt like being punched in the gut, but right. somebody left their fist there. And I could barely move and I could barely breathe. And I, I remembered an exercise from Eckhart and I sat down in my chair and did the only thing I could do, which was to sit with the pain without a story, without trying to run away, wow. but to just be there and sit with the pain and feel it without doing anything special at all. And what I noticed is when I was able to just sit with the pain and just breathe into it and just be there, and eventually started to fray around the edges. Like I, the way I, it was in my mind was like a black spot in my gut. Right. But after a while, I noticed that I was sitting there. It started to fray around the edges and it started to soften and it started to change color. And after a while, I don't really know how long it was, it dissolved completely. And I was wow. able to get up and go around my day as if nothing had happened. Wow. But it came back. Right. When I came back, it was considerably less intense, but I also knew what to do. So that was one method. And then the other thing uh, years later was making the decision, I have to stop this. Right. And, and to create the separation. Right. You know, listening to you talk, Nathan, is really interesting because it brings up the idea, at least in my mind, and I, I'm certainly no expert in this, is that so many times, you know, we believe Sometimes people tell us, well, you know, we we sabotage ourselves, we sabotage ourselves. And it sounds so counterintuitive to believe that we're actually working against our own interests. And I think listening to you talk, it's interesting because it seems like a lot of times we sabotage ourselves by reacting to setbacks. So if there's a goal we want and there comes a stop point or a stuck point, instead of just being with it and continuing down the road, often we act out or react and we end up burning bridges or chasing people away or actually getting so involved in the obstacles that we forget what the goal is. I mean, is that something that you find to be the case that it's the stories that we tell ourselves or the thoughts we have that really hinder the goals that we want? Absolutely true. It always comes down to a thought or a series of thoughts and which create various different beliefs if there's a, a shock or some sort of limiting factor there. If you didn't have the story, you wouldn't have a problem. Right. But it's really that simple. And a lot of people would say, oh, no, 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 it's got to be more complex. No, it's not. It's right. really simple. It's one belief or maybe a couple of different beliefs that hang the person up and creates the, the sabotage. Right. Right. And nowhere in the conversation, at least as you and I would have it, nowhere is the suggestion made that an event isn't happening. So things happen. And I think back to advice columns where people will write in and say, how do I resolve this difficulty with a coworker? Well, you have by having a discussion, by facing yeah. it, 
The issue yes. doesn't go away. It's the ancillary thought processes around it that if we can be still with them, I love that description you gave about it, getting frayed around the edges. Once we can get past that, like you said, that initial shock of an event, it opens the door for us to really start to deal with the issue. Yes. Can you tell us if we, if someone was to come to you and work with you or do a session with you around this, because there's so much here and I love the simplicity of it. That's the elegance of it. How do you work with people then to empower them to get past this? What does it look like to work with you around self-sabotage? Well, the first thing I do with, with someone that I meet is I get them to tell me about what is going on in their life. Right. And that might take 15, 20 minutes. And then after that, I start asking them careful questions. And those questions are designed to find out what is the, the thought or thoughts that are causing the trouble. Right. And once I know what those thoughts are, then I know what to, then I know what to do. Then I know what the next step is which may be something like conflict resolution, which is a process to do with neuro-linguistic programming. Or I might take them into the work of Byron Katie, which is a, a self-inquiry process designed to find out if what you're thinking is actually true or right. not. And so it's really critical to start drilling down into that. And so in working with clients, sometimes the clients will say to me, I know what my limiting beliefs are. One client actually came to me that way and said, I've got these two major problems and I know what they are. And I'm going, wonderful, you've done a lot of the work for me. Uh, <laughs> the award, Well, I mean, it doesn't always happen like that. Right. See, the problem with self-sabotage is it's often unconscious. A person doesn't even know that it's there. Right. They're having problems and they don't know why. Right. And so that's where the questioning comes in so I can find out what is going on. And once I know, then I know what to do. Right. Can you talk a little bit, because you mentioned uh, NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, and the work of Byron Katie, and th th that comes up a lot in this space. There are a lot of therapists who work from those places. Can you describe what those tools are for people? Well, Neuro Linguistic Programming was invented by Richard Vandler and uh, John Grinder way back in the 70s, and they were studying these different therapists and why they were having such amazing results. Um, right. You know, one of them was Milton Erickson, uh, the other uh, Virginia Satir, I think. And they, so what they were doing is that they were, they invented a process called modeling. And modeling is where you copy what somebody else is doing. And in theory, if you do it right, you should be able to get the same results. And that's what they were doing. They were getting the same results as these practitioners, even though they weren't trained in these disciplines. And they went on to evolve this entire process to do with hypnosis, language, gesture, modeling, mirroring, creating rapport, all these different techniques. Right. And for me personally, I find that NLP is extremely powerful. And depending on what it is that the person is suffering from, it's quite possible to make a positive lasting change literally in minutes. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. And, and what about that work of Byron Katie? Because that comes up a lot out there in the world of therapy and anxiety and, and stories. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how you use that? Sure. Well, in Byron Katie, she's got a couple of major methods that she uses to help people with their beliefs. The first one is what they call a judge thy neighbor worksheet. And it's to do with judging someone who you feel has been causing a lot of pain, difficulty in your life. And she takes you through a process. 
The other one is one belief at a time, where you just write down the different beliefs and you go through this process. So there are four questions, which are, is it true, yes or no? And depending on the answer, like, can you absolutely know for sure that it's true, yes or no? Mm. How do you feel? How do you make others feel, blah, 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 when you think that thought? And then the last step is turning the thought around and coming up with three turnarounds to do with that original thought. That's, those are the basics of the process. There's a lot more to it than that. Right. But those are the basics of it. Well, it sounds like it's so important for self-sabotage because oh, yeah. it really is about our thoughts. We get so defensive. Human beings, or at least the ego of a human being, gets so defensive. We cling to those thoughts because we believe, of course, that that's what makes us who we are. And Mm -hmm. we forget that a lot of times those thoughts were implanted by others. So when when 30 students are making fun of us, that sends a very powerful message to us. And if we incorporate that message into our marrow, our spiritual marrow, like you said, it dictates our life. So to sit down with someone like you who can walk us through those beliefs, I think that's that's really important. Have you had clients that have had major success that have had major aha moments that really stand out to you using this work? Yes. Although it's kind of funny. And with this one client, the aha moment was not actually his. It was mine when I was listening (laughs) to him speak. Well, you see, he had a particular belief about something that happened in his life. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, have you ever spoken to the person that you have this belief about to find out whether it's true or not? Wow. And he said, no. I said, then the problem you've got is you actually don't know if this belief is true. Mm. And you've created this enormous mountain of information and ideas and thoughts and beliefs and everything else about how horrible this person is and what he did to you, blah, blah, blah. And you don't know if any of it is true, do you? Right. And he, and he said, no. And, and I saw his, his face, who's kind of like a deer in the headlights <laughs> and because he realized that he had made up this enormous story mm. and he didn't know if any of it was true. And I was saying to him, well, then your number one step outside of us just talking here or even doing inquiry, you need to sit down with this pe- this person and talk with them and, and voice this belief and find out whether it's true or not. Because wow. if you discover it's not true, this huge structure you've created is going to collapse. Right. And it shocked him quite a bit. But I I said to him, I said to him, you know, I need to bust you on this because you've been talking about all this stuff and I'm hearing, wait a second. Is it true? Have you checked it out? And that's what made the big difference. And it it did create quite a shift for him by doing that. Yeah. See, once we're confronted with that mirror, which is, of course, what you're providing to people, it's just it's this mirroring, you know, you're saying, you know, you're, you're throwing up a mirror and saying, look in here and answer me honestly. And it's true. And I love that question that you asked him. Do you know if it's true? I think if we sit here and think back through our lives to the people we've known or the people that really hurt us in some way, we don't really know what they were going through at the time. We don't really know if we have an accurate picture of who they are to really believe what their motivations were when they were either bullying us, making fun of us or whatever. And I I think that's, that's very powerful. And I love that you share that because it kind of brings everything we've been talking about home. So Nathan, what's a tip or tool then 
that you can give us right now on our journeys of personal and spiritual growth that we who are listening to this, what can we use to help us overcome self-sabotage? The very first step is awareness. The realization that you're causing yourself trouble in your life. That would be step number one. Right. Step number two would be talking to the people who are close to you and asking them to observe you, mm. to see what you're doing. Because the expression of being too close to the forest to see the trees, right. it really applies here. Because we may be doing all sorts of things in an unconscious way that are that are interfering with the way that we function, but we don't see it because we're we're too close to it, as I said. So right. if you ask one or more people that you really trust to watch you and to let you know about things that you may be doing, that would be a really good way to begin. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And that's that that can be <sighs> do you have a suggestion for people like maybe journaling for people who have a really hard time with that? Is there another approach that people can use to develop a witness, to develop an observation technique? It would be to start writing down your thoughts about any given topic. Right. So if, if you are experiencing something where things in your life aren't working, is to start writing down those, those negative thoughts, whatever they are. And then with something like that, I would, I would suggest using the work of Byron Katie as a way to, of inquiring into it. Right. Because a lot of the problems with the self-sabotage have to do with blaming. Right. And if you're blaming somebody else, you're essentially, you're stopping everything dead. Right. In, in order to be able to move beyond this, you have to stop all blaming. Wow. So one of, one, of um, one author out there, um, just trying to think of his name in the moment, but he wrote a book called The Success Principles, Jack Canfield. Right. And the very first chapter is called Taking 100% Responsibility for Your Life. And so that means everything, all the good, all the bad. How did I create this? And when you start looking at your your life and you start asking yourself, you know, why am I getting these results? What is causing them? If you start to be a detective in your own life as to where things are going wrong, it's like, what did I think about? What did I do? How did I get in my own way? Right. What did I say? So when you start to look at that, you will eventually start to get more information about what it is that you're doing and how to change it. Right. And, you know, I think it's important to say here, like we said before, things come up, things happen, events occur, things disappoint us, things don't work out. Not every business venture makes it. Not every restaurant stays open. Things happen. And so it's not about negating the events of life. It's about, at least in my mind, learning about how to at least not be the reason personally that the things fall apart. You know, things happen that we can't control, but at least if we can stop the stories and get out of our own way, then at least we know at the end of the day that we gave it our true best. And I think that in itself is powerful. Agreed. 
And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Nobody Guide to Life. Thank you so much, Nathan, for being on the show. I want to remind our listeners, success sometimes seems like it's all about luck. But at other times, it's a choice, a choice to embrace opportunities when they arise instead of sabotaging them. I know it seems counterintuitive. We mentioned that, that we work against our own interests in this life. But that's the power of the past, the power of the stories we tell ourselves. Start taking a minute, like Nathan said, to reflect on and then reframe the events of life and use them as allies instead of reacting to them. And see if that just doesn't bring you a little more perspective and hopefully a little more peace. If you'd like to find out more about Nathan and his work, you can find him at NathanSiegel.org. That link will be in our show notes. And you can always check out more episodes at TheNobodyGuideToLife.com or on the Nobody Guide to Life YouTube channel. Reach out to us on Twitter and Facebook at Nobody's View or on Instagram at J.A. Plosker. Or join the Facebook community, Simple Spirituality. If you liked what you heard on this episode, please consider sharing it with someone you know, someone you think could really benefit. Keep practicing and have a good week.